Welcome to The Living Proof, a podcast that celebrates the passion and the flair of the tens of thousands of bartenders working across the world. Join us as we honour the masters of the industry, the fashionistas of flavours, the craftsmen of creativity, the doyens of distilling and the holders of history. We go behind the bar to talk all things booze and bartending, the tips, the tricks and the trends as together we explore success in an industry that personifies hospitality. Grab a drink and settle in for some cool conversations as we hand over to your hosts, Nicole Hark and the Admiral Marcus Mottram. Here's to lifting spirits. Marcus, how do you do? How do you do? And happy Monday. Oh, God. I'm <laughs> We're back. Today, really it's been so bad. long, Nicole. I've been holding <laughs> on to it for so long. <laughs> oh, and that's all you can do after all that time. Come on. <laughs> it has been a minute. Hey, talking about all that time, can you believe it's actually been two years since we kicked off the Living Proof podcast. I remember it like it was yesterday, but we were so excited at the time. We launched with Dale DeGroff, who who else would you launch with? I mean, let's face it. Is there anyone else that you could go headfirst in with? He is, after all, the king of cocktails. Absolutely the king of cocktails. And any bar worth their salt will have his books on hand for all their bartenders. We certainly lend it out to our bartenders. We make them read it and give us a review because so there's, there's so much good information within it. Yeah, and I think, you know, for us it was about saying we're serious about this. This podcast is not just a bit of fun. We actually want it to be really meaningful and to help people and provide great information as well as have awesome conversations. And he was the first of our awesome conversations. So you and I have spent a bit of time over the Christmas break. Um, We might have had a bit longer break than we intended. But we've had a bit of a think and said, well, it's time for a refresh. Mm. We're we're into this. It's been two years, but let's refresh. And then we went back and started thinking about all the people that we've spoken to over those two years. And going back to some of those original episodes, Marcus, we, we connected with a whole lot of people who I'd regard as absolute masters of the trade. Giants in our industry. These guys are the masters. So we're going to bring you a master's series and conversations with the people that have helped shape this wonderful industry that I get to work within. Think of Dave Wonderich, Gaz Regan, which is so devastating. Oh, He's not with us any longer. Just incredible. He, oh, I feel sad every time I think of him, but I think so it'll be honored. really interesting to revisit our conversation with him. He was mm. just so generous with his time and his thinking and such a devastating loss to the industry. 100%. But all these wonderful, amazing people who have really sculpted the industry that we work within. So true. And what I love is that they really do continue to inspire those new generations of bartenders. They've got this impact that you'd have to say, Mark, it's like it's almost timeless. Yeah, like our conversations with them, I think, you know, timeless. Although I, I was I was pretty new then, so listening back to those early ones is a little bit of a cringe for me, but uh, it's great to revisit them, see how far we've come and continue to learn and inspire many. I, I am giggling because I did think the same when I listened back to them. <laughs> I thought, oh, wow, we've, we've come a long way. Thank God. So once again, it is only appropriate 
that we kick off with Dale DeGroff in a conversation with him that we recorded way back in December 2018. But it's as relevant today as it was then and as it will be in another decade. So, Marcus, let's get into it. Dale, great to have you on the Living Proof podcast. It's such an honour to have the opportunity to chat with you. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So tell me, how, how does Australia stack up? I mean, you get to travel the globe doing this. Where do we rate? Well, you know what? Surprisingly high because the community is much smaller and advances and good ideas travel faster. We, we in the United States have so many, many thousands and hundreds of thousands of different kinds of bars that for the craft movement to gain a, a, a real foothold, in other words, the, the sort of culinary style of cocktail that's become popular in the craft movement, mm-hmm. it's a much bigger deal. It takes a long time to get into the mainstream of general, of where all the bartenders work, which is usually like the, the upscale chain restaurants that, that are all around the United States. And they tend to catch up slower than the independent, smaller, crafty kind of places. So in a country like Australia, that's not the case. All the advances and all the culinary style and it it travels quickly and people are very detail oriented so you can get better drinks more often you know so would you say the epicenter of bartending is la new york san francisco new york chicago la san francisco and then there's a sort of a a pocket of real interest in the seattle and the portland area a lot of there's a lot of wineries, a lot of craft beer, a lot of craft uh, distilling up there, and a, and a really strong craft bar community. And and the other thing that's extraordinary about the United States is that our USBG, which stands for the United States Bartenders Guild, which is a mm-hmm. signatory of the International Bar Association, has exploded. I, I was a member of the single chapter in Los Angeles wow. back in the, <laughs> the late seventies, early eighties. Now there are like. 35 or 40 chapters around the country. And that that's another sort of signal about what's happening in this, what used to be a very challenged profession after Prohibition, which has now become a much more interesting and much more professional place to be. So how would you say Australia stacks up against some of those cities? Absolutely. Uh, you know, on a par, I would say. I mean, that this is the age of the internet and you're the ability of these bartenders to stay current is absolutely uh, a level playing field, in my opinion. And I, I'm seeing, you know, even in 2006 when we came here and we went to the Bayswater Brasserie and mm-hmm. all these wonderful places, they they were doing extraordinary stuff. I mean, I was I was very impressed. It's interesting. You seem actually genuinely excited about where we're at at the moment. And I note that along the way, you've sort of talked about saying that um, we're decades away from a true cocktail revolution. How close do you think we are now? Oh, my God. Yeah, we're there. This is, uh, (laughs) it's, oh, without a doubt, it's pretty easy now in every, even in the United States, in every secondary city, there are two or three really extraordinary bars. It's, it's, it's possible to drink well pretty much wherever you are now. This, this thing has created such a, a wave of excitement among young people mm-hmm. in the industry. Uh, everybody wants to buy into it. And uh, it, it's, it's it, the same place where the the, the food revolution was in the late 90s where, you know, we had gone through Nouvelle, California cuisine, all that excitement, and then it's a fusion. And sure. then 
oh, just this extraordinary explosion of creativity. And I think that's where we are. We've finally gotten over the hump and we're we're in that very sweet place. And the fact that what we're doing in the bar now would not have been possible if there hadn't been an extraordinary culinary revolution that mm. really created an audience of people in love with big flavor, number one, and willing to take a chance on all kinds of cuisines. And then and, and that translates to also all kinds of cocktails. So, we, Is there anything else you could point to that you feel really helped to drive cocktails? Well, the, the big drinks companies finally understood and have really bought into the idea that educating bartenders is really a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. And they've done it. And they started by educating consumers. You probably remember in the, in the malt scotch explosion, you know, which uh, really swept the world. There were advertorials constantly in all of our newspapers of note uh, explaining uh, with really well-written, almost reading like how-to books. And I used to have to tell my young bartenders back in that day, you know, be careful, fellas. You need to be at least as smart as people who are sitting at your bar, and they're (laughs) smart now. They've been educated by the drinks companies, and now the drinks companies have really spent a tremendous amount of money to educate bartenders. You talk about that education of, of consumers. Do you think, is there still a gap between the sort of adventurous nature and the, the um, I suppose, the culinary intellect of the bartender versus where the consumers are still at? Or have they met in the middle somewhere? Well, I, 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 I still think that in the big urban areas, I think I think it, the gap has closed for sure because there is education now for bartenders. My partners and I, David Wondrich, Paul Packel, Steve Olson, Andy Seymour, Doug Frost, who's a master of wine, master mm-hmm. sommelier, we have created a program, Interactive Online, which has educated 15,000 bartenders and, and it's growing every every wow. month. And we're, we have a master's class and we're only just one of the educational initiatives that are out there. And that never existed. It just simply never existed because people post-prohibition didn't think that they thought the cocktail was dead. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, it was really uh, not necessary to educate these people who were just sort of drink. They were sort <laughs> of my friend Brian Ray, 21 club bartender said, they're not bartenders, they're drink transporters. <laughs> that was the that was the lay of the land back then, you know. That'd be the ultimate insult now, wouldn't it? Oh God, yeah. I mean, you know. And you know the the other thing is is when I got into the industry in, in the early seventies, the palette, if you will, of colors that we had to work with was so much less interesting than what's on the market now. With the explosion of Luxury brands and, and reserve brands and premium brands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've seen this extraordinary rich repertoire for, for us to mm. delve into. And that's how that's all happened in the last 20 years. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, we went from uh, in the United States, three or four premium gyms. Now we're up to hundreds. Mm. Yeah. You know, hundreds. And and the artist and distilling world has just exploded. So in terms of, of, of premium spirits, we are so far ahead of where we ever were, even even in before prohibition, even in the golden age, as it were, you know. And plus the fact that we have so many categories that have entered the mainstream now that were just non-existent: mezcal, uh, yes. pisco, mm-hmm. bijou, <laughs> sake. You're talking to me. <laughs> you know. Oh my God! It just goes on and on. So, with a great array of things we can drink today, what are you currently drinking? Well, I I mean, I will always be a 
gin martini, a dry gin martini drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm the kind of person that when I'm in New Orleans, I'm drinking Zazeracs and Bocares. And mm-hmm. if I'm in Havana, I'm drinking daiquiris. If I'm in Peru, <laughs> I'm drinking sours. You know, it's it, when in Rome, you know, but yeah. I... I still enjoy a cocktail hour, a really good martini with a twist and an olive. <laughs> and isn't that, though, the the joy of the culinary side of cocktails in that it should match your mood. It should match where you're at. It should match the, the, the place you're visiting. Partly. Absolutely. And, and, and there's a lot of young people now that basically drink their way through dinner just by hopping from bar to bar and having little bites mm-hmm. and matching them with beautifully paired with, with the extraordinary cocktails that are uh, that are perfect matches for them. You know, with the, with the whole rise of the pan, Pan-Asian cuisines, you know, they're very cocktail friendly because of the spiciness and the heat and the ingredients and the big flavor. They just stand up to cocktails so well and cocktails stand up to them. So people are dining this way. They're not even sitting down to big multi-course dinners anymore. They're just, you know, having small bites and cocktails. It's a really wonderful way to go. Having been through so many years in the industry and seeing where we have got to now, where do you see it going? Well, I see education expanding even more. Uh, it, it, it is the wave of the future. Uh, I think that the bartending profession will become uh, a really, really good place to be. There are so many multinational luxury companies that own hotels and, and restaurants around the world, and that if you can find people that are conversant in different cultures and different drinking cultures, and they can put menus together, you know, in multiple different environments and cultures, that's a very valuable thing. So I think more than ever, the bartending profession offers lots of lots of places to go, you know, commanding six figures and, and being really a serious profession like it never was before. Mm. And I, I, I see the Eastern market, you know, spreading out across the world, and that's, that's fascinating. What's attracting your fascination at the moment? I mean, if you could choose anywhere in the world to spend time now and to... Well, Lima, yep. I, I, I love the cuisine there, and to me it's... It's one of the five cities in the world that have really foundational cuisines. I mean, they have such a rich, natural, you know, they have the, they have the Amazon as their vegetable garden. <laughs> you know, that's their back door. And their front door is the Humboldt Current with the incredible fatty fish that they pull out of the sea. They, they have the uh, beef of the Argentinian extraordinary so they have everything right there close by. It's interesting. You, you keep going back to, to food and clearly there's such a relationship between lovers of food and lovers of cocktails. Yeah, you, you, there are there are no drinks without food and there's no food without drink. That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> it. that's the thing I say to young bartenders. I mean, if, if you are a responsible server of alcoholic beverages, you know that there are certain things that slow down the absorption of alcohol into the bloodstream and that's when it starts to become a problem and those things are food <laughs> you know and uh, and water so you should in copious amounts be serving food and water with alcoholic beverages what advice would you give to a young bartender starting out in today's era uh i would say total immersion knife skills take a saucier class wine class learn about eastern spirits coffee tea understand beer you know you need to be a, you need to be a full immersion beverage person these days because that's where that's where 
the work is for people who understand. And, you know, even in a, even in a small restaurant, in a small town, you need to be in command of all those things because that's what we do. And people are interested in all those things. Just because people drink beer doesn't mean they don't drink cocktails, doesn't mean that they don't enjoy exotic coffees, doesn't mean that they don't understand what sake is. You know, people are well-educated and you need to be, you need to be an all-around professional. That That's, to me, the the challenge for young guys to understand the wines and the beers and the spirits and all that stuff. You know, we were never flavor people. For some reason, somebody a long time ago decided that bartenders didn't need to learn how to taste like chefs and wine guys. And who who made that rule? You know, now now that we're so culinary, yeah, now that we're so culinary and using so many of the same ingredients, I think bartenders need to understand how to taste. They need to have all that part of the culinary experience, you know, in their training. That we spend a lot of time, my partners and I, in our five-day master's class, tasting through literally over 200 spirits from around the world and making people, you know, better tasters. Because without that skill, everything else is kind of peripheral. And everybody wants to be making menus and being, you know, if you're on the if you're on the culinary side of the business, I mean, even the sous chef doesn't get to make the menu. Mm-hmm. The chef makes the menu. And and I think bartenders should be making new drinks every day of the week, but I don't think they should be putting them on menus until they're, they've gotten to the point where they have the chops to do it, you know, so to speak. If I'm allowed to say it, of course, you are um, 30 years in uh, t- to your art form, but it sounds like you're still able to be surprised and, and that your palate is still able to be surprised. That's wonderful. Totally. Absolutely. I'm, I, I found a a leaf that one of these bartenders used today that was like a cross between lemongrass and cilantro. And I'm like, where did this come from? You know, this is outstanding. Yeah. It was, it was just lovely. And it, it was a perfect, you know, hand and glove to the, to the drink that he had created. So yeah, I'm surprised a lot when I travel and I, I see what people are doing with their local ingredients. And is that one of the gifts of, of the business in which you work, is the fact that you can continue to learn? It doesn't matter how long you're in this game. There's always still something left to learn. If you're open to it, absolutely, totally. If you're open to it, if you're still excited and passionate about it, it's it's it never ends. Uh, it's not a kind of a profession that you retire from, I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm I'm turning 70 in September, and I don't have any retirement plans in mind. (laughs) What's the party? Uh, Actually, we've had a couple of big ones on the decades previously. And this you're is not telling me you're going easy quiet. this time. We are. We're going to go quietly, my <laughs> wife and I. Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> we had a party at Belmont Racetrack with about 75 or 80 friends and took over a whole little, you, you know, had our own betting booths and it was marvelous. You know, we're not going to go crazy. <laughs> we're going to do something a little bit quieter. You, you pointed before <laughs> to that connection between the bartender and the customer and that that element is just so important, isn't it? That the ability to actually engage and connect beyond just making a drink for somebody. Well, you know, in the hospitality business, there are two separate and different contracts. There's one at the table, and there's one at the bar. And the one at the table is is you know you're rented a piece of private property there. You're gonna you know, you're gonna make love. You're gonna do business. You might even have a bite to eat. <laughs> and uh, when you're at the bar, you are in a totally public place, and the curator of that space is the bartender and he's the he, he either makes it or breaks it you know it's a totally different contract and you, you can't you can't you know if the customer is difficult 
you can't respond in kind. You have to be able to, well, as my, as my, my boss and my mentor said, when he first instructed me about what he expected from me as head bartender in this place called Aurora, he said, I want you to make friends out of difficult people. Mm. That is some of the best advice, I think, in the bartending world. Because people are difficult. That doesn't make them bad. That just makes them difficult. <laughs> sure. And I suspect you've seen your fair share of them. Tell me, what, what drink do you regard as the true test of a bartender? Well, it, it may sound crazy, but as simple as a well, it can be two or three ingredients, but as simple as it may sound, there are three or so classic which really do define a bartender. If it, because of the care and the way and the attention he pays to the steps of preparation, the old-fashioned, the Manhattan, and the Martini. I know they're classics, they're legendary, but how, how much attention the bartender pays in the little details, for example... If a guy makes you a martini and he spends all this time chilling and chilling the glass and doing all the right things, and then he walks over to that little bar top garnish station that he's got for himself there, and he skewers three texas size warm olives and drops them in your drink, he's just ruined it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that kind of detail that, you know, those olives should be chilled. And if they're not, he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, you know. This is, we're, we're, these are iced American drinks. They, you need to spend all clever ways of figuring out how to keep them iced and keep them cold. You know, but that's just one detail. There's so many others. Sure. Proper dilution, all that stuff. Proper size of glassware. You know, the having olives that are correct. Having a cherry that's not soaked in, in some kind of toxic red dye. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I understand your first bartending shift, you were serving a fellow Australian that night. Oh, yeah. I, they, oh, that was a story. Have you heard this story? We'd love it's to. It's a fun story. So I, I was a waiter, and I lied, and I was at a place <laughs> called Charlie O's, which was a fancy place. Joe Baum opened it back in the day. It was in Rockefeller Center. And uh, the uh, manager was, they got, because the place had uh, recently been purchased by a fellow whose daddy was a big contributor to political campaigns, Mayor Beam was in Gracie Mansion at the time. And so his kid's restaurant got the contract to do all the parties at Gracie Mansion. But this was like the first one, and it was a biggie. (laughs) And it was the mayor, Mayor Beam, presenting the keys of the city to Rupert Murdoch. And so they're running around the restaurant. None of the Irish bartenders or union guys want the gig because you have to load a truck, unload it, load it again, and unload it again. You know, <laughs> when you do a gig at Gracie Mansion, damn if they're going to do that. They didn't need to because they were union guys. And so see, they, they told the waiters, who knows how to tend bar? And I raised my hand and lied and said I did. And I got a little index card and asked Mike to put down some of the ten, top 10 drinks. You know, and he said, Dale. Don't worry about it. They're not going to be drinking this stuff. And I said, please, please, Mike. And he did put down a couple of recipes. And, of course, when I got the Gracie Mansion, we set up our little tabletop bar. It was Chardonnay, Cab, Perrier, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, vodka on the rocks, scotch on the rocks, gin and tonic, vodka and tonic. That was it. And I'm thinking, wow, this bartending gig is easy, you know. <laughs> and uh, the mayor gave the keys to the city to Rupert Murdoch, and there's all these celebrities there. And I'm just thinking, wow, this bartending thing is really pretty 
Well, you know, after six months of doing some bartending at the service station at Charlie O's, I thought I was a hot shit. And then five years later, I find out I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But <laughs> right, let's fast forward now to, <laughs> to Rupert Murdoch in his new duplex apartment in Soho, in his brand new J- Japanese wife, who's throwing a surprise birthday party for him. And my buddy is doing the catering calls me up and says, I got a great gig for you if you want it. You got to invent some drinks for Rupert Murdoch named after his ranch and this and other stuff and blah, blah, blah. I said, sure, I'd love the gig. So I go set my bar up and all that. And after the big surprise thing is over, Murdoch comes up to the bar. He says, so you're the hot shit cocktail guy, eh? And I said, well, actually, Mr. Murdoch, our fortunes have risen together in this town. <laughs> and I told him the story about Gracie and Nancy. <laughs> Touching anyway, it's a it's a it's a super tough industry, uh, comparable to being a rock star. Late nights, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. How have you yeah, survived that it? Part of it. <laughs> how have you survived it? And what could you give advice in terms of bartenders? What how they've got to work in this industry oh, to be able to survive it as well? Advice is really hard to give, except to say that if you're not really passionate about this job, you have to make some decisions. You know. Do you want to get married and have a family? You know, how important is that stuff to you? And if you do, do you know the, what the consequences are of taking a lifetime plunge into the bartending world and how it's going to affect, you know, your mate, you know, and your children? Because I went through it. I raised two sons. I had a saint of a wife who put up with my because I was at the Rain Room with a very task, a, a, a very intensely difficult taskmaster in in the, this genius Joe Baum, mm. who really expected you to be all hands on deck, and um, it was tough because I don't think in, between ages five and into the end of high school, I pretty much never had dinner at home with my uh, family. Mm. I never did homework with my kids. None of that stuff. You have to think about that stuff when you take this road. Now, I mean, my sons are grown and, you know, we have a good relationship, but it took a long time to make the connection, you know, uh, after missing all that, missing out on all that stuff. Listen, it has been awesome spending time with you. Um, we, we really appreciate it. it. It's been enlightening. It's been wonderful. Um, just adored every minute of it. So thank you so much for your time. Well, I'm glad that Penny and uh, the group at the Kuiper Companions together it was really fun. Thank you. Marcus, I don't know about you, but I just still feel so honoured to have had the chat with Dale. He, he was spectacularly good. As do I. I mean, for these people to open up their time for us to be able to speak to them uh, and and chat with them about all the things they've done and also thoughts on the industry today. I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's definitely a fitting launch for our Masters series. I'm excited about this one. In fact, I feel a little bit emotional about our upcoming episode of the Masters series because we do talk to Gareth Regan and he has passed away since we had the chance to interview him. What a man, what a contribution to this industry. The late, the great Gaz Regan. I do love that you can still get the uh, Gaz Regan's finger from Cocktail Kingdom to stir down your Negronis with. <laughs> and he would love that, wouldn't he? <laughs> 100%. He would love that. But what, what a beautiful man he was. And again, so generous with his time. 
And so that's next week in the Living Proof special, The Masters Series. We hope you'll come and hang out for the conversations. In the meantime, if you want to connect, we're on all your socials at Living Proof Pod, and you'll find Living Proof wherever you find your podcasts. Marcus, in the meantime, and given it's been a long while since we've done this, come on, come on, do it. Here's to... Here's to lifting spirits! Spirit. <laughs> <laughs>